I think in some situations, people feel they're not allowed to grieve divorce because it was what they wanted. And I, you know, there was no ambiguity there for me in terms of whether or not we were going to get divorced. We were unhappy for a long time. And um, I felt relieved when we moved out and it, it was clear to me that I was not going back. And I think in my head, I had this, this notion that because I was glad and because I didn't want to be, you know, it was my choice not to be married to this person anymore, that I didn't get to grieve the fact that we didn't have our nuclear family anymore, that my three-year-old and five-year-old didn't have a family unit that was living under one roof. And that's a big, it's a big loss. And so there's that layer of like feeling selfish about it or something um, where I think a lot of people feel like I'm not allowed to honor that sense of loss. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. Welcome back to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. But just in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I certainly witnessed it over my career as a social worker, and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But honestly, I'm in the midst of a different kind of grief this season of the podcast, as I'm currently navigating breast cancer treatment. I'm wondering where you're at. Maybe you're in a new season of grief, or just new to reckoning with old grief. Or perhaps you're hoping to learn how to better show up for the griever in your life. Regardless of the reason, I'm so glad you chose to be here with me and my guests, because together we're reimagining grief, one conversation at a time. About a year or more ago, today's guest shared her beautiful, thoughtful, humor-filled, and metaphor-rich memoir with me. You know I love a good memoir, so I devoured Dipped in it the following weekend and jumped right on social media to post about it and even shared about it in my not-so-regular newsletter. Yeah, my newsletter is called that because, well, grief isn't on a schedule and neither is my newsletter. Anyhow, it took a while for us to connect in conversation for the podcast, but as often happens, the gap in time was perfect. It meant new things have unfolded in both of our lives, and I believe it made for an even richer conversation. In this episode, Bethany shares the experiences and lessons she's learned from several losses. Some we've explored in past episodes, such as the loss of a parent, and other losses we haven't touched on as much over the seasons, the grief that results from divorce. At the end of Bethany's marriage, her now ex-spouse came out as gay and transgender. And while Bethany shares that she initially grieved the loss of the he she was married to, she quickly realized that this person who now uses the she pronoun was the same exact person that had made her laugh like crazy in her marriage and frankly drove her nuts at times too. 
Bethany brings humor, metaphor, and deep wisdom to our conversation about things like secondary losses, grief waves, grief expression, and so much more. I can't wait for you to meet her. Bethany Harvey, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. So beautiful to have you on the show today and to meet virtually face-to-face versus DMs and messages. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lisa. So today, folks, we are in for such a treat because one of the things I've appreciated about Bethany, both in her beautiful memoir, Dipped in It, if you haven't read it, get a copy. It's in the show notes. Um, And in this work that you've been sharing with me that you're doing around life coaching is that you've been really focusing on helping us expand what we come to call grief and not having it be so narrow. And of course, that's the mission of all of my work with the podcast, with my own book, with my talk, with my teaching. So I appreciate that. And we're going to touch a lot about that today. We're going to talk about the grief around divorce, around kids living the home, around other maturational phases of our lives that it's really critical that we name and acknowledge as grief. So that's a really expansive view, and I appreciate that about you. But I want to start our conversation today where I start all of our conversations, which is the origins of your grief beliefs. When you think back to an early loss in your childhood, what comes to mind? And in particular, what do you think the adults in your life modeled as grief, sort of explicitly or explicit, implicitly? What do you think you learned? What does something come to mind about an early loss? Yeah, I, I would say the first loss that I really remember, uh, I was about 10 years old and my mother lost her father unexpectedly. And I just remember the fact that my mother is a very emotionally uh, put together person. And um, I think really was just raised to be polite and not to, you know, show these great displays of emotion. So when her dad died, it was actually the first time I ever even saw her cry. And it was not on purpose. She was, you know, I walked into her room and she was folding laundry and I started talking to her and then I realized she was crying and it totally, you know, caught me off guard because I had never witnessed that before from her. And so I think, you know, early on, I kind of learned that you're supposed to kind of keep it to yourself and that you're supposed to sort of take it in stride. Uh, I think I had later grief experiences with other grandparents where um, particularly my dad's side of the family is very emotive and kind of the opposite way. And so I have learned over the years that I take more after them in terms of really being, um, I don't know, tearful a lot, whether it's laughing or... (laughs) Big emotions, Happy tears, Big emotions. Uh, commercials, yeah. whatever it is. I really let the floodgates open and didn't follow in my mother's footsteps in that way. But uh, but that's really my first memory of loss and just that it was very private to her. Yeah. Did she have sort of a, when she recognized that you were seeing her cry, do you recall there being sort of a, I got to pack this away now. I have to sort of get myself together because my daughter's here or? Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, it was a moment where it didn't feel right to acknowledge it. It was like, I sensed that it was like, we will never speak of this again. (laughs) 
Gotcha. I'm just going to back out of the room really slowly. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of us have had some of those experiences with our families around, um, especially when we think about sort of the big moments and the big emotions of our lives, when we don't have sort of a track record of how is it that we behave, what is okay and isn't okay. And so, yeah, especially when you're younger and you're, we feel our parents are infallible when we see something a little amiss, it's like, okay, don't talk. About yeah. It. I mean, I think it even scared me a little bit thinking yeah. back to it. Cause it was sort of like, wait a minute, she's not in control right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. And we're probably going to touch on it later. Cause one of the things that I appreciate that you shared and dipped in it was sort of this, um, notion, um, spoiler alert, you know, post your divorce around really wanting to give yourself permission to feel the big feels and to grieve the losses that came as a result of that and be a stable presence for your girls. And I think so many of us who are parents who are grieving grapple with that sort of thing. And, you know, like I want to make sure that I'm stable so that when my kids don't see me, you know, having big emotions, they don't feel completely un, you know, unearthed. So we're going to, we're going to touch on that. Yeah. 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 I think even to be fair, when I was actually going through the divorce initially, I didn't think I had the yeah. right to yes. be in deep grief about it. It was only after my father passed away that I realized, oh, that was grief too. And I never really processed it. And so yeah. now it's sort of like, what happens, you know, as you know, as a therapist, if you don't process one thing and then the next one hits and then the next one hits, yeah, at some point, the you're door's going to open. Yeah. <laughs> you're going into well, the well. <laughs> yeah. And even when we do, I would say, you know, there's re grief, but then there's just these grief waves. And I would say, even as we get to each new developmental milestone or new thing, even if we've, because I don't think we're done grieving, but even if we've sort of given our effort to an, a grief of some sort over some loss, new losses can naturally open up new layers of grief over old losses. But especially as you're talking about, if we've never touched it, the floodgates come open. But I want to you know, sort of wind back a little bit to help us understand how we, how, the sort of sequence of events around what led to you really recognizing this, uh, the divorce as a, a loss. I think I remember from your memoir, your you were moving towards separation possibly before your father's heart attack before his passing or actually we had been fully divorced okay and i cannot sure of the exact timeline but it had been a couple of years and uh and so that had happened and and then probably about nine months before my dad passed away my ex-spouse came out as transgender and I recognize now that I went through a grief around that as well, feeling like the person that I had married had died. That's sort of how it, how it felt initially. He had died and this woman was sort of taking the place of that person. Yeah. And so there was a grief around that as well. 
until I re- realized that she's exactly the same person that, that she was before that I was married to for better or, or for worse. Yeah. Um, you know, still ma- made me laugh like crazy, still, you know, drives me crazy. Irritating all of the too. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> fair game. Um, That's fair game. Yeah. I think maybe to answer your question, I started writing to process my father's death and it was the process of writing that really made me realize like, oh, some of this is familiar. I've, I've felt some of this before. Mm-hmm. And even though it was really the first deep loss that I had felt from losing somebody so close to me, it was there were elements of it that were familiar with the divorce and, and processing everything that happened during and after that. And so that was really when I recognized, Oh, I I was grieving these things. And, and it, it does feel like a death, like divorce feels like the death of the life that you thought you were going to have. And, um, letting go of that and and letting go of how you thought things were going to be, which is a a big part of grief in losing someone who's passed away is that your, your picture of how things were going to move forward can literally no longer exist. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many questions for you. I'm trying to think about the directions that I want to go. I think we're going to talk, yes, more about that, that I think that's a form of ambiguous loss. You know, Pauline Boss talks about type one and type two. Um, and I think, you know, in type, you know, being someone is physically distanced, but still in our hearts and minds, which is in a way what a form of the divorce is, that form of loss is. And I think there's sort of something that we don't touch on as much, which you just did, which is the ambiguity and the grief over all of the things that we had a reason to expect to pass, but will never come to be because of this turn or this loss. It could be an absence. It could be a change in course. And so I think that's really profound for us to reckon with and to just name and acknowledge. And I guess that's what I want to start with or come back to is you said you started writing this memoir to come to grips with your dad's death, which was quite sudden, if I recall, a heart attack mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. passing. What did you think you were going to come to grips with? Like, what were you searching for in the writing? And then maybe, but what did you discover uh, even just about the loss of your grief over your father? Yeah. Did you so- know writing was for you? Cause I think a lot of people hear that like, Oh, I'm going to just write and they don't know what to do with that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually sit down to write a memoir about my father's death. What actually happened was I, uh, I like to say I thought I was going to grateful my way out of my grief. Um, these popular trends where people did a gratitude post every day, typically they would do it in November for Thanksgiving and they were thankful. I thought, that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write every day about something that I'm grateful for. Yeah. And then I won't have to grieve anymore because I'll be so effing grateful that yeah. it will just go away. We and, call that bypassing, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did, didn't know I was doing that at the time, but it became very clear later. And so I started, I went on social media and I said, I'm going to do a, a gratitude post every day for a year. 
which my friends close to me thought was hilarious because they were like, you're in the worst place you've ever been in your life. Like, what are you doing? Uh, so I did it for probably about a week. And then I realized I didn't really want to write about being grateful. And I wanted to write about how I was really feeling. And so one day I just sat down and I wrote this post about how I wanted to crawl out of my skin and I couldn't stand my own company. And um, uh, all of these people responded to that more so than they did to any gratitude post that I wrote. And uh, so many people saying, well, I can exactly relate to what you're going through. That's exactly how it felt for me. And, uh, and so then I just kept going with the writing every day, but I just wrote about whatever I wanted to write about that day. And so, and sometimes it was a a gratitude post ended up being something that I was grateful about, but it, what it became was very authentic because, you know, as you know, the way we can process. Yeah. Yeah. It's a roller coaster. So one day I would be up and like, everything's fine. I'm great today. (laughs) Everything's great now I'm cured. And then the next day I would be down in the well again and whatever it was that I was feeling was what I would write about. And through the process of doing that, you know, people kept telling me you should write a book. And um, I was just trying to tread water. And at the end of the year, I realized I had written a book really. So what the book is, is a compilation of um, many of my daily reflections that I wrote during that year after my father died. And what I did also in the book was delve into my divorce and uh, my part, my ex-partners coming out as transgender and navigating being a, a single mother and, and starting a business and just basically my whole life kind of getting turned on its head and, and how all of it felt. <laughs> yeah. As happens with big yeah. profound losses, we have these big sea changes mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to talk about later sort of the interesting nature that though these worst things that happen to us are the worst things that happen to us and we wouldn't wish them on anyone. And sometimes they shift us in directions that offer us gifts in the world that we didn't, you know, would not have seen. But I wanted to read a passage just reflecting sort of something that you just shared about the sort of impetus to write the gratitude journal. And by the way, I I could think I can speak for Bethany and myself. We're not dissing gratitude. There's a place and time for gratitude. I, if you follow me in my work, you know, I practice that I am a joy detective is what I call myself. Like I, I believe in gratitude. And I think culturally and individually, we try to use that as a bypassing. But I just loved this, this passage that you shared. You said, I started with a gratitude journal. I needed to remind myself of all of the people in my life for whom I ought to be grateful. I write ought to because at the time I believed that if I wasn't a grateful, that I wasn't a grateful person, not anymore. This is the part I really appreciated. Grateful people don't feel the way I felt. Angry, anxious, depressed, confused, disillusioned, desperate, to name a few of grief's cohorts. Looking back, I realized that what I was actually doing trying to do with this gratitude journal was avoid my grief. Ah, a loophole. If I can just be grateful, I won't have to grieve anymore because one cannot do both, obviously. I just I had that sticky noted and underlined because it just resonated so much, this binary way we hold ourselves to account. I can either be grateful or an ungrateful person and then have my grief versus the 
the both and of what we can have, mm-hmm. or that I can be grateful that that means I can't be disillusioned. I can be grateful, but that means I'm not allowed to be angry. I'm not allowed to feel sad. I'm not allowed to feel. Yeah. So I love that you named that for us. It's really powerful. Yeah. That that was probably the biggest revelation that I had in the book was just that grief and gratitude can coexist and they do. Yeah. And I don't know, that's living is yeah. having them beautifully fused. You can't get one without the other. Yeah. And how we soften to allow ourselves to vacillate between one or the other means we get to feel each of them more fully. I think one of the things is we know when what we're saying isn't in alignment with how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. Like we're not dummies, you know? And so I yeah. think when we try to grateful our way out of our anger or grateful our way out of our sadness, there's this disconnect. And then we don't really get to feel grateful, but we don't really get to feel sad or we don't really get to feel angry. And so I love that you shared this very honest kind of process that most of us have gone through if we've experienced profound loss of trying to gratitude or grateful our way into it is that I can soften and move in between the both and of them. Yeah. 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 Really powerful. Really powerful. So you said sort of writing this book again with this effort to kind of grateful your way into grief, you slowly began to recognize that you, though you, I think you say in the book, you know, anger, maybe and sadness aren't maybe your forte in terms of feeling comfort in expressing them. I can relate to that. Well, it's definitely the anger part. Um, but you also started to discover that this loss that you experienced um, in the divorce, I think you and your ex-partner divorced, as you just said earlier, um, prior to your dad's death, but you hadn't really named it as grief. Was there a pivotal moment? You said it was the feelings were reminiscent of the grief feelings of losing your dad, but was there sort of a pivotal moment where you had an aha, oh, this is important. I need to start naming this and processing this as loss. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think with her coming out as trans for me, I had this moment where I was driving to uh, a funeral service for somebody and it was at the same church where we had gotten married. And it, it didn't occur to me at all that this would be an issue for me because I was at that time, you know, completely comfortable with us being divorced. You know, we were getting along fine. It was, I didn't feel sad about us not being together or anything like that. And I was driving to the church and all of a sudden this wave, which I recognize as grief, hit me. And I actually had to pull the car over and I just burst into tears. And I I realized that for me, I had this thought in my head that the person that I had married had died. Yeah. Um, and, you know, somebody else was taking his place and that um that they were gone and of course um as we moved through this and i got more comfortable with everything you know of course i was accepting of it right from the get go and was so proud of her for being who she truly is it took a little bit for me to have that moment where i realized she's exactly the same person and um so I definitely had that moment of grief in the car and 
but I, I think I just let myself have that like little snippet and that was it. And so when I was writing the book around my father's death, I allowed myself to go back into that and go back and process it and go back and um, validate it in a way like yeah. you're it's you're allowed to have had those feelings and it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're ungrateful or that you're not understanding or that you're not accepting it yeah. still felt like a loss in that moment and uh it was a big a big change yeah yeah it's a big change again both and i think it's really important what you're saying there you can be happy for her and accepting and even recognize for yourself that being still married isn't something that you want and so that this divorce is you know i don't know if the right word is good but is you're accepting of it and obviously there was a point when you walked in that church that day that many years ago to get married to that person this is not the life that you expected and to to that point we can have the both and of sort of grieving our dreams, our hopes, even some of the experiences that we will, yeah, will not be able to have while also finding some joy or some gratitude or some acceptance of how things are. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when you were just saying that, it made me just think about, I think in some situations, people feel they're not allowed to grieve divorce because it was what they wanted. Yes. And I, you know, there was no ambiguity there for me in terms of whether or not we were going to get divorced. We were unhappy for a long time. And um, I felt relieved when we moved out and it, it was clear to me that I was not going back. Yeah. And I think in my head, I had this, this notion that because I was glad and because I didn't want to be, you know, it was my choice not to be married to this person anymore, that I didn't get to grieve the fact that we didn't have our nuclear family anymore, that my three-year-old and five-year-old didn't have yeah. a family unit that was living under one roof. And that's a big, it's a big loss. It's a huge and so there's loss. that layer of like feeling selfish about it or something yeah. um, where I think a lot of people feel like I'm not allowed to honor that yeah. sense of loss. Yeah, I want to pause here in our conversation and just really marinate in that for a while for those of you who are listening, whether this is um, resonating because you've gone through a divorce or some sort of breakup or any other loss of your choosing. I want to, I want everyone to hear us say this. You are allowed to grieve even the losses you choose. Ooh. Even the losses you choose. I teach um, loss and grief at the University of Texas at Austin, and when I every time I talk about that each semester in class, I can just feel like the audible sigh when I got used to do it. Now I do it virtually, or you know when people write papers on it. There's just this permission giving that so many of us are desperately craving, and in our sort of grief illiteracy or in all the grief myths that permeate our culture, I think this is one of the most damaging ones. Um, and so just to, for all of us to take that, whether it was we chose the divorce or we chose the breakup or we chose to leave the job or to leave home or whatever those sort of maturational maybe phases or choices that we make um, 
sell our home, move across the country. It's, it's okay to be excited and grieve mm -hmm. that time, that version of you that you were in that time, the dreams that you maybe had for that time or that relationship or that place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder when you came to, because when you divorced your partner, um, you shared in the, in the autobiography and the memoir, excuse me, that they shared in session that they were gay and then you guys move forward to the divorce in those intervening years before you really sort of came to recognize your own giving yourself permission to have this own loss. Did you ever have conversations with them about their own grief over the marriage ending your grief over the marriage ending? Any like was grief has grief been a conversation that you've had with them? I'm just curious. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Bethany explains how differently she and her now ex-spouse communicated and processed the divorce, a decision they came to in a therapy session at the end of their marriage. Bethany explains that though their verbal communication styles are very different, they shared some tender moments of grief expression in the month following the decision grief expression that didn't rely on words. Hey, I'd love to stay in touch with you off the air too. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind the scenes content from the pod. Are you wondering when the heck my Ted talk is going to drop? Yeah, me too. It's got to be soon, right? Or are you hoping for some sneak previews from my book that's dropping in spring 24? Maybe you just like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. Here are a few quick and easy ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. It's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, and my work as a grief activist too. And third, and you know the drill by now, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Friends, you may not know this about me, but I'm a sucker for anything that combines peanut butter and chocolate. But what my body doesn't need is excess sugar, which is why I love the fact that Mosh Peanut Butter Chocolate Crunch Protein Bars have no added sugar. What I also love is that Mosh founders Patrick Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver made their brain health and wellness company mission-driven, donating a portion of all proceeds to support women's brain research through the Women's Alzheimer's Movement at Cleveland Clinic. Mosh protein bars are a convenient and delicious snack that nourishes the brain and body while also giving back to others. Like peanut butter and chocolate, I'd say that's a winning combination. After the show, head to moshlife.com forward slash sneaky to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack. 
What? Yes, you heard me. Mosh is offering my listeners 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack, which includes all six delicious flavors. Head to moshlife.com forward slash sneaky today. Between my ex and I, yeah. no, uh, I, we've um, been a bit mismatched, I think, from the get-go in that I'm a verbal processor and yes. she really isn't. Gotcha. And that has not, you know, like I said, she's the same person that she, that she was when I was married to her. Yes. And, um, but I think when I think about the grief piece, the most tender memory actually comes to mind, which is we had that session where um, she actually came out as gay during our marriage counseling yeah. therapy. And, you know, the immediate answer to that was we're going to get divorced, which I recall being a big relief because I felt like I had been failing at this marriage for a number of years and this was some kind of an explanation for me and uh, sort of an allowance of, okay, you can let go of this now. And we lived together for another month after that. And I just remember, you know, laying in bed with her and it was like, we'd take turns crying and, mm-hmm. and just like hold each other. And so there was sort of a, not sort that, of, but there was a nonverbal. I was just um, say, but that's grief expression. Grief. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you say something there that I think is again so important for folks to hear and really to take in is that grief, of course, is emotional and physical and cognitive and spiritual and relational. It's not just sad feelings, but also grief expression isn't. We grieve with our bodies. We grieve with our in lots of ways that aren't talking. And so, I think when we experience losses, whether we're two partners going through a divorce or maybe we're two siblings who lost a parent or et cetera, we're going to experience our grief and express our grief differently, but not to diminish or dismiss each other's sort of grief expression or experience or to sort of overlook some shared experiences. Cause it sounds like even though you didn't process it in the way you like to, which is talking mm-hmm. about it, you had a shared experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah, there was there was deep grief there. And I and I don't really think for her it was around us that being married anymore either, because yeah. that wasn't what she wanted at that point either. Yeah. But it was it was like I said, the the grief of pulling apart our children's family. Yeah. And yeah. uh guilt. Guilt and grief and all of those nasty emotions Oof. that get rolled up together. Guilt and grief. Yeah. 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 You know, one of the things you touched on, um, or we touched on earlier that I, speaking of grief, parenthood, let's talk about that. I don't think those two things don't go together, grief and parenthood, right? But I think when we think about sort of re-grief or grief waves that happen years later, I think one of the things can happen, and I think you shared this in the in your memoir, is it's not just that initial loss. It's all the sort of secondary losses that we experience and these moments in time that happen over a lifetime that bring a grief wave back upon us. And I remember you sharing sort of, you know, you're, we're a single parent to two young girls and just sort of like the decision-making process, you know, most of the time. I mean, I know there was 
shared parenting, but can you think about what you've learned about these secondary losses, both maybe over the loss of your father, but also in the wake of the loss and grief that you've experienced from divorce? What have you learned about how secondary losses show up for you and how do you kind of give space for them or, or acknowledge them? I think for me, the most powerful way that I experience the secondary losses is not when something has gone wrong and I've wished that my father was there. It's when we've had these beautiful family moments yes, and he's not there. So it's yeah. more of um, what he's missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's, those are the ones that really hit me. Yeah. Um, I find myself in those times doing something I called smying. I'm trying to get this into Webster's Dictionary, smying, smiling while crying. And that's just <laughs> that time where you're enjoying so much some beautiful moment and very keenly aware that that your person's not here to experience it or witness it. And yeah, I think those are symbols of of secondary losses. Yeah. I think tying that into the divorce piece. Yeah. I can remember just initially and you know, I don't know that I've had any of these moments recently as they've gotten older they're now um my oldest is going to be 17 tomorrow and and then my younger one is 14 but when they were very little being a a, a single mom with them and watching that some experience where you just you know those moments when you're just overwhelmed with the joy of watching your child, you know, they're just having a tea party on the floor or whatever. And you just have this moment and you're like, Oh my God, I love this child so much. And, and, and you know that the only person that loves the child in the same way is your spouse or your ex spouse. And they're not there to experience it with you. And I think that was, now that I'm thinking about it, a secondary loss experience. Yeah. Of, we don't get to um, enjoy these just like ordinary everyday moments yeah. as a family yeah. Uh, yeah, or, or as the family that we were, were as a family. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so there would be moments like, you know, a birthday party or a random dinner or something where we would all be together, but just those, those ordinary moments or when the, you know, your child says something really hilarious and, you know, you want to turn to them intentionally hilarious. And yeah. And you're like, Oh, you know, they're not there to, to laugh about this with me. Yeah. So I yeah. hadn't really thought about the secondary loss piece of, of, in the divorce sense of, of the spouse not being there, but I think it applies. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course there's just like the financial ripple effects and the location and, but, and also these moments of like not having a shared experience of your children as frequently as you said. And, and I think, you know, secondary, secondary losses of the everyday. I think when I think about all the grief I felt over the years, it'll be 12 years next month since my husband passed. And um, eight years since my friend Joe. And, and when I think about the, the times that grief waves, certainly are there sometimes on these big special occasions or s- joyful moments, but it's also the mm-hmm. secondary losses of the, 
there's nobody there to sit next to you on the couch or there's nobody there to ask you like, what did, the, what happened last season on that show? It's just the, <laughs> the little, you know, cause yeah, he was the memory keeper of, of us too, but you know, just the little everyday moments and those kinds of losses can happen again from these, um, you know, non-death losses as, as the case with a divorce or with a breakup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I love and hate those moments that I would have thinking about my dad and just like, Oh, he would find this hilarious. Yeah. And it's like, you love that you're thinking that and, yes. you know, maybe even feeling like he's laughing about this right now too. Um, but yeah, not physically having, having them there. Yeah. It's sort of like a very, very bittersweet feeling. It really is. And this is reminding me of a conversation I had with a client the other day, which who was in early grief and they asked, will I ever get to remember, you know, this was a sibling loss, you know, without feeling the overwhelming sadness, there was not the sort of sweetness around it. And, and, and that's really sort of my invitation. It's different for everybody. And of course it doesn't happen in a linear fashion, but I would say that's the way in which grief transforms and we are transformed by it is that early on, sometimes the evoking of memories of our person just comes with all the weight and the heaviness and the sorrow and the sadness. And somehow through some alchemy over time, we have these moments where we can smile first and then maybe cry, or maybe it's just mm -hmm. only smile or joy. And I wonder if you're, you get to experience that maybe both over the loss of your father and even sort of just this transformation, even in the, in the relationship that you still sounds like maintain with your ex-spouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the case. These, it, it does, it does get easier in that way, doesn't it? Where you're, I think as time goes by, you, you find more of a delight in having these moments that you are thinking of your person or sharing a joke in your head with your person, because it's a normal reality that you go from thinking about this person 24 hours a day to, you mean, you're not thinking about them all day, every day. Um, you know, yeah. six years later, 10 years later. And so when you do have those moments of connection, it's like, it's just like a thread that you want to just pull and hold on yeah. to. And that's exactly it. It's a moment of connection. And, and if you're listening in early grief and this all sounds like way too much and way too far off, I just want to say like, we see you, we honor you. We recognize that you, I probably would have sworn at you if you told me that that was the case early on. Right. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, and I think there's some of that middle ground too, that we experience where we move from thinking about them 24 hours a day to recognizing that maybe there have been days or maybe a week that we haven't thought about our person. And that, distance of time, especially in that middle passage in our grief can feel especially hard because even though the early grief felt painful and we were thinking about them every day, we felt connected to them. And that sort of middle, the messy middle, as I call it, is kind of that hard time where we haven't maybe got to the feeling delight about recalling them, but we don't feel as connected that we did in the kind of everyday rememberings. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a, there's a metaphor that I 
had in my book, I, um, if and when you read it, you'll, I know you've read it, Lisa, but yeah. just to the listeners, if and when yeah. you read it, you'll see that I, I love a good metaphor, but I, um, I, I likened that to having misplaced my purse and then, you know, you find your purse. Maybe it was like on, you know, you left it on a bench somewhere and you're kind of frantically looking through it to check and make sure that you have your keys, your phone, your whatever. I would have these moments where I, I was like searching my brain, like that purse. And I was thinking like, okay, yes, I remember his laugh. Yes. I remember, you know, his face. I, you know, sort of, you go through this moment of panic of, Am I, do I not have everything still within me? And, you know, kind of touching each of those things in your head and then sort of being able to relax. Okay. Yeah. It's all here. It's all still here. Still got it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I appreciate it. Yes. I did love that. And you know, I love a metaphor too, which is why I was so thrilled um, and delighted to read your book. And I think that's really, that's part of the work. I don't really want to use the word work, but that's just part of what we do as we move forward in our grief and the sort of enormity of their presence in our life transforms. We kind of do these little inventories, like inventory taking, like you said, I can almost visually, you know, picture mining through a purse, right? We do this little inventory taking to see what do we still know? How do, how can we still ground ourselves and have an orienting or grounding, um, grounding touchstone to our connection to our person? Um, which is going to transform just like our relationships with people who are still alive transforms over time. I think if we can resist, you know, when we resist in life that our relationships should change, we get into tension, right? Like whether it's parent child or friends or siblings or spouses. And I think the same thing can happen when we find some resistance, which of course, we don't want things to change. We don't want to feel differently. But when someone passes, I think we want to sort of hold that in place, our our relationship to our grief and therefore to them Mm -hmm. in some kind of static way. And part of what just inevitably happens is if we can soften to the fact that our relationship with them is going to change, it's not worse. It's not less than, it's just different because we are building this life that we are incorporating them into. And so I like that, that metaphor is just like, I can use these touchstones to sort of keep myself reminded and keep connected and allow myself to acknowledge that the relationship that I have with this person whose past has changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. When we come back, Bethany shares how the overwhelmingly personal and thoughtful responses from readers to her memoir got her thinking about how she wants to show up in the world, both for herself and for others. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Hey friends, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, it would mean the world to me if you would do one or all of the following things, actually, if you'd like. First, follow or subscribe to the podcast. Following helps you because it means you won't miss an episode when it drops, and it helps me because then I know you won't miss it. You simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. 
After that, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the show. So one of the things you and I talked about offline before we um, came on today was as a process of writing this book and, um, you know, doing book signings and I know you've won some awards for the book and people coming to you, you started to recognize that people were coming to you um, in this way of wanting to sort of share their story and for you to hold their story and to process their story. And that led you to think about what, how might you be transforming your own life and using your own experience to sort of show up in the world. Can you talk a little bit about what that's looked like and how you're coming to be in the world with that? Yeah. So, um, so as you just said, I, I think because my book is so raw and I don't really hold anything back and it's just, I think that's why it appeals to people who are grieving is because there's no polish over it. And I really did write it when I was in the middle of my grief and there really are these roller coaster moments where I'm up and I'm down and it, that's what grief is like. And so I think because it's sort of like um, people feel like they really know me so well and that we're close friends or something after reading my book and I don't know them at all. And so, you know, they would stop me or or come to a book signing or um, I've, I've gotten, you know, emails and even some handwritten letters in the mail from people um, who've read the book and have felt like they wanted to share their story because it almost feels weird that what how how could I possibly not know what they've been through when they know all of these things about about me. And I really wanted to be able to help people to 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 just feel more worthy of receiving the, those stories and to yeah. feel like I could really hold some space for them. And so I started to think about the idea of coaching and um, fell upon a coaching program with Martha Beck, which I, I've read all of her books and, and love her. And so I felt like, well, that was a good fit for me. And I started the program last year and I'm just finishing it up now. But I love how it explores um, the big changes that we have in our lives and how you know, as you touched on before, sometimes the big changes are things that we want or that we choose. And sometimes they're not, but either way, they're big changes. And I think that I want to be careful here and say, I want to reiterate kind of what you just said a few minutes ago, which was that nobody is grateful that their person died or should be expected to feel like, oh, well, this happened to me and it made me a better person, that sort of thing. Rubbish. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no one, no one would choose to, you know, have what happened to, to them or in their lives or in their family happen so that this change could happen to them. Um, but nevertheless, it does put you through a change, uh, throws you into it, if you will. And uh, Martha Beck talks about sort of four cycles, uh, four stages of a change cycle. And it's sort of, 
she uses a metaphor of a butterfly, but it's like stage one, you're basically goo. And, you know, the way that a caterpillar basically dissolves into nothing uh, while it's in the cocoon. And it's sort of a stage where you should just rest and take deep breaths and do whatever you need to do to get through that phase. And then the next phase that you go into, she calls the dreaming and scheming phase where you're kind of thinking about, you feel different and you're thinking about what changes might be happening, might be coming um, when you are able to emerge. And and the next stage is sort of the, the implementing stage where you're moving forward with whatever these changes are and, and you know, recognizing them and, and doing something with them. And then the fourth stage is sort of an equilibrium peacefulness phase where everything in your life is just sort of going on a, you know, a a flat trajectory. And what I found really interesting about her thoughts on this is that basically, for better or for worse, we don't just go through one change cycle in our lives. We, our life is a series of change cycle after change cycle after change cycle. We're born, we change, we die. (laughs) This is kind of, yeah. 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 Over over and over again. Over and over and over over again. And, um, and, and interesting too, is that sometimes we throw ourselves into the goo stage because we don't like the feeling of equilibrium. (laughs) So we want, we, we kind of make the change happen. And, um, so I just find it all fascinating and I love the idea of helping people who might reach out to me because they, uh, feel connected to me and in, in my space from from the writings in my book, and I think that my niche seems to be people that are going through uh, going through divorce actually, or considering divorce, or in that space where they know that they're really unhappy. They're in the goo phase of divorce where they are like, "This is probably happening," but right now I'm just frozen and and kind of thinking about what next steps are on that and. Um, I've coached a few people who have been going through the grief of having their um, teenagers go to college or, you know, otherwise leave the nest and kind of thinking about well, who am I now? And I have this great vast space now. And how do I honor grieving that and also think about what that means for me in, in the next phase of my life and what my dreams are? And and sometimes people are looking at that in a way that they've never even thought about it before. Um, wait a minute, who am I now? What do I want? Yeah. And um, so I find that really exciting to think about working with people when they, um, well, really in, in all different stages. Uh, but I love the kind of the phase of the awareness that, huh, like I feel really different now. Yeah. And, and now what, what does that mean for me? And where, do, where do I want to take that? Yeah. And uh, I just think that it's really such a rich place. And, and it's a beautiful place because most of the time when people are in it, they didn't think they were ever going to find themselves in that place, right? We all kind of have this weird notion that we get on this path, you know, we, we marry the person, we get the job, we have the children, and then everything's just going to go along a very predictable trajectory. Yeah. I had, you know, a very unpredictable trajectory. And, um, and it was, it was, a and we all do in our own way. We all have an unpredictable <laughs> trajectory in our own way. Right. Yeah. 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 
So uh, yeah, it comes as a surprise as a surprise to us all when it it probably shouldn't. But and um, yeah, I just love the idea of being able to to support people in what I love about coaching, which is you know different from from therapy, of course, is I love that it's it's just about asking the right questions. And, you know, I, I in, in no way feel that I'm qualified as a grief counselor. I'll leave yeah. that entirely to you, Lisa. No. And so I, I don't feel like no. that's really what I have to offer. But I think just, just mining what's within someone and asking questions about how they are feeling about different things and what they make that mean and, and um, just exploring. And yeah. we just, we, we're so we're all so fascinating. We have so many realms within us and so many possibilities. And I love that moment of kind of figuring that all out. Yeah. Well, you know, you touch on something, which is really how I, I approach when I work with individuals or even when I do organizational work, because um, I sort of have left my more formal clinical approach, but it's exactly what you're talking about, which is, I think, asking the questions, you know, I think about like the poet Rilke about like living into the questions. I really think part of what any big shift happens. So any kind of loss, it's a death loss, a divorce or anything. When we, when that predictable story that we thought was going to play out, isn't playing out anymore, or in the way that we thought the best things that we can do for ourselves. Well, one is rest, <laughs> right. And receive support. But two is to be I think the gift, if I might use the word, is it gives us a chance to ask ourselves questions of ourselves, of our future, of our capacity, of our ability, of our desires, of our dreams that we would never have asked of ourselves. Again, we don't have to be happy that that hard thing happened, but living into the questions that these phases, these losses that happen, they open a space for possibility, which is terrifying because we like certainty and, you know, ambiguity does not work with our survival instinct, you know, for certainty. And some of the most beautiful things come and discoveries come when we're willing to either ask ourselves a question or to work with somebody who's going to help guide us to ask ourselves maybe the questions we were scared to ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, as you were alluding to, we're going to change no matter what. We're always changing. As we have these big changes when we have these big kind of, you know, events in our lives. And so then the question for each of us is, what intention do we want to bring to our change process? Like, how do we want to be intentional? Because we're going to be different. I was a puddle on the floor and kind of a zombie after my husband died and I was going through the motions of work and I was parenting, but I definitely wasn't the Lisa that I was before Eric died, but it wasn't really till I kind of found my way into being intentional through therapy, through support, through my, some of my own mindfulness practices, et cetera, that I started to think about how I, how I wanted to drive that shift or that change. And it sounds like that's what you discovered, even going through this course, how did you ask yourself different questions? Like, did you learn how to think about being more intentional about the change that you went through in the wake of loss and grief. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think, you know, in my book a lot, I talk about kind of finding myself in the well and sort of 
recognizing the gifts that were available to me down there. (laughs) And also maybe the greatest gift, recognizing that I knew how to get out. Yeah. And uh, so I'd keep finding myself there, but I knew I could get out. Yeah. And so then it's sort of like, well, maybe I'll just hang out down here a little bit and see see what I learn about myself before I climb back out again yeah. and having those moments. And I think that that's why I love um, the the metaphor of the butterfly for the change cycle. Although I, I ironically, in my book, I talk about how we shouldn't be butterflies because that is just one transformation. And um, I talk about how we should actually be lobsters because though lobster molts and then, you know, is able to grow. And during the time that they molt, they're at their most vulnerable. vulnerable. And then they, and then they grow their hard shell again, and then they molt and they're vulnerable again, and then they yeah. grow and they have a bigger shell. And um, so I love that metaphor. But the reason that I love the, the uh, caterpillar one is I just feel like it's so kind of silly and simple, but to say like, you're, you're literally goo is like the best description of grief that I can possibly think of. A hundred percent. And in a way, if you're completely dissolved, you have, you have the potential to go in at whatever direction that you want to, because everything has fallen away. Yeah. 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 And, and whatever animal metaphor you use, whether it's the butterfly or I love the lobster. Now I'm going to, I can't not think about that. And in the book, I know you talked about sort of snake skin and how I want to talk about that metaphor because I thought that was a, a really useful, whatever animal metaphor you want to think about for your change. I will just say for me, and I think this was a particular challenge, you know, having been, I was a clinical therapist at the time that my um, husband passed was I wanted, just like we bypass with gratitude, I definitely am a person who tried bypassing the gooey stage of grief by trying to hurry up and figure out what kind of butterfly I was going to be. Uh-huh. And I think yeah. a lot of us want to bypass the goo stage or the multi gooey vulnerable lobster stage by trying to figure out I'm going to, you know, and I did this start a nonprofit in their honor. I'm going to, you know, we, and we try to get to sort of that other place. And I don't want to dismiss that there's, it's, it's important and meaningful for us to sort of think about and begin to ideate how might we shift and become something, a different version of ourselves in the wake. And Mm -hmm. just like we can't gratitude our journal way out of it, we can't go from, you know, caterpillar to butterfly without being in the goo or as one of my guests once said, sitting in the suck. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you would just have to sit in the suck and it's not forever. And it's not linear, as you said, like you come out of the well and you go back in, but so just the both. Mm-hmm. And again, I feel like is a theme of, of our conversation today. Um, right. We, we have to be in the goo and it's in the being in the goo that gives us the chance to sort of tap into the well of those things that we already have within us that are going to help us become whatever butterfly, you know, that we're going to be. Yeah. I, I remember reading, uh, somewhere about and at the time the the metaphor really reminded me of my my teenagers kind of going through that really hard time but yeah with the butterfly if you what starts to come out of its chrysalis if you help it to come out of the chrysalis it actually dies because it, it the wings don't form properly it's the process of fighting its way out of the chrysalis that allows it to grow its strong wing strength and be able to fly yeah. And so 
yeah, there's no, there's no rushing your way out of the goo and there's no way that, you know, you, you, you've got to do it yourself. And of course you can, you can get that support and these grief communities that I stumbled into years, you know, a few years after my dad died, Lisa, you and I have talked about how it, it, I just felt so isolated and didn't occur to me to look up books or look up podcasts. And, and, you know, Lisa had pointed out to me that there weren't as many available then either, but this was 2017, but it didn't occur to me to try and become a part of the community. I really felt like I needed to do myself. And I think, Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I think that I, there was a certain amount of shame. I want to say, um, around the fact that I felt like losing a parent was something that everybody has to go through and that there was nothing special about me or about my dad. And, you know, why did I think that my grief was so important and that, you know, because it's, it hasn't, it's gotten so much better, but it hasn't been modeled for us what normal grief is like. So you're just like, okay, uh, once the casseroles and the, you know, sympathy cards stop coming in the mail, then that's it. And you, what's wrong with you that you're not just yeah. carrying on? And so I think just recognizing that there's no timeline. Yeah. There's no timeline. Yeah. And being in and, communities of other grievers help us see that, that we have. Yes grief at different stages of our lives and yeah, that it goes on in these ways that are. I I think that I, uh, when I said that you have to do it yourself, I feel like what I mean is there's no escaping what's within you. And so you can become a part of a, a community of grievers. You can start a foundation. You can do all the things like that, but you ha- there's no avoiding going inward. Yeah. Yeah. Without, um, I don't know, just internalizing it. And then it's just sort of waiting for, for something to tip it. Yeah. Like, tip you yeah. open, I think. And. Yeah. You made some beautiful parts there accept. that you made some beautiful points that I think we've other guests and I have talked about over the, over the years, but I appreciate the way you just brought that together, which is the both and of no one can do the grief for you. You like, you are, you have to sit in the suck or be in the goo. You are going to have to attend to your grief. But I think community, whether it's your book or my forthcoming book or the show or whatever social media community you're a part of or in person community you're part of, I think grief community can help be a grounding place for us. Mm-hmm. Or maybe if we want to pick up the well metaphor that you were doing earlier, it's like we know somebody's at the top of the well with a flashlight and a rope. And so when we <laughs> go down, right, that they can, we know somebody's there when we start to feel very lost, that somebody can shine a light and help us find our way back out. And so I think it's the both and of, you know, we love everything to be very binary, but you can't just be in grief community and not do the work. And I think it's really risky to do the internal reflection of grief and not have a grounding community. And community is a broad word that could be a person or it could, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to air your business, you know, on social media, but I think the both and there. Which is what I didn't actually, when you, when you just said that, I was like, Oh, I didn't seek out the community and looking for a podcast or looking for a grief group. Yeah. But 
I was writing these posts on social media and it was very meaningful to me, the community that gathered there and all of the people that commented and, and recognize themselves and what I was writing. And I think that happens a lot. I, I did the same and I think it's, it's really profound and you're giving other people permission to feel seen too. Don't you think as a part of that very public way of processing, it's not for everybody, but it can be really beautiful and meaningful. I, I mean, I think that's the best thing really that, or the thing that I'm most proud of maybe of coming out of my book is just being an example that, you know, the next person who re- you know, person who reads my book doesn't have to think when they've experienced a loss of their parents that, that this is something that they should just take in stride because it's, you know, the normal way of life, you know, circle of life, whatever it might be, um, that they might remember, oh, you know, I remember reading her book or reading her, you know, blog posts and, and, uh, this is all normal stuff that I'm going through and, and what, whatever, whatever normal means, but exactly just not being alone. Yeah. Yeah. Being goo. (laughs) Let's all be goo together. Right. That's right. And find our way, find our way back into some beautiful form because we're all going to do that. We're all going to transform. And even this, this transformational phase of your life, which is one of many from sort of processing your grief, you know, on social media and then in a book and then discovering your grief over, you know, your ex spouse. And then the discovery that you have around how you might show up for others and becoming a life coach. This is a transformation you would never have predicted, but you're doing it out sort of out in the world for us to see. And each, and I've certainly been very transparent with my own grief process, including my current one around my own cancer treatment and journey. Um, and the more we can each do that bravely, the more we can create community and to normalize, as you said, whatever the normal means to normalize that it looks a lot of different kinds of ways and much of it looks not at all like we were taught, you know, growing up or in TV and movies. So thank you, Bethany, for being one of the people out there that is modeling um, what this transformation looks like and for then turning this around to show up and help other people. I really appreciate you and listeners. I'll drop it a link in the show notes. Do yourself a favor, pick up a copy of Bethany Harvey's dipped in it. First of all, chock full of metaphors, which I love, humor, some foul language, which you also know that I love, and um, just a little smattering. And um, yeah, it's wonderful. And then Bethany, where can folks follow you just in case they want to learn more about this work that you're doing too? What's the best way for people to reach you? Well, my website is is diptinit.com. And so there's some information there uh, about how to connect on social media. And also if anyone wants to reach out to me about um, booking a a coaching session, um, that's something that I'm, you know, sort of the next phase. People keep asking me if I'm going to write another book and and I might, but the answer to the question, what are you doing now is coaching. So uh, I'd love to connect. Sounds good. Bethany, thanks so much for joining me on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast today. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you, Lisa. It was my pleasure. Well, friends, there's another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast in the books. Don't forget, if this episode or the show in general means something to you, 
head over to your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcast and leave a five-star rating and write a review. I truly would appreciate it. And if you want someone else to feel seen and held in their grief, why not share this episode with them? I also want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.